0: Okay. on friday we were talking about when god usurps someone's free will when god for a time usurps someone's free will that he always does this according to certain principles and the things that we saw was that number one it's always an evil person that has their will usurped because god has no reason to do it to a righteous person number two it was always temporary It never happened over the whole period of the person's life but always over only a limited spectrum of time number three that it never concerned their salvation but had to do with world history number four that the consequences were suspended we looked at balaam in the case that he blessed the children of israel because god made him do it but he was killed because of his sorcery and his divination so he was not blessed because he blessed the children of Israel because he wasn't responsible for blessing the children of Israel. That was God's doing. Um, and then with, in the case with Nebuchadnezzar, that he lost his mind for a while and he lost his, ca- his kingdom, his counselors, his majesty, and that was all returned to him after he was given his mind back. So he did not suffer the results of having been an animal for a while, and it was good for him. And the last thing is that it always resulted in good, either to the person or to others. As in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he found out that God could humble people. Now, we're going to look at, in the Old Testament, this is in reference to Pharaoh's, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And we're going to look at some of the places in the Old Testament, starting in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 19. As we go through, I'll be giving you all the references from Exodus chapters 3 through 14 that have to do with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 3.19 says, uh, But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. In other words, he says, this is the, this is the place where the king of Egypt's heart is at. He will not let you go unless it's under compulsion. Okay? So, um... um In uh, 421, we read, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my, my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So, in this reference to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it is not in reference to anything that has to do with Pharaoh's salvation, but in reference to letting the people go and to the idea that because Israel was God's firstborn, that God would kill Pharaoh's firstborn if he refused to let the people go. Now, notice that God says, I will harden his heart, but God says, you refused to let the people go. And we have to remember that Pharaoh had his responsibility in all of this as well. And we'll see it's not until chapter 9 and verse 12 that we see that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, Chapter 5, verses 2, 17, and 18. It says that Pharaoh refused to let the people go, but it does not state why he refused. So we can't tell whether it was because of the stubbornness of his heart or whether it was because the Lord had hardened his heart. However, it would seem to be out of place at that point because God goes through a long dealing with Pharaoh first and then finally hardens his heart or begins to harden his heart. And Then it goes back and forth. Um, Chapter 7 and verse 3, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And that was in reference to something specific. not Again, not his salvation. It didn't have to do with that at all. But it was in reference to multiplying signs and wonders in Egypt in reference to bringing the people out of Egypt and then so that the Egyptians would know that, um, that Yahweh was the Lord. Okay? So it doesn't have reference to, to his uh, salvation, but it has to do with multiplying signs and wonders, which was something in history, bringing the people out of Egypt, which was something in history, and he said, I'll do this in order that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord. Okay, So it was for their good that he was doing this. That he was allowing Pharaoh to receive the results of his own hard heart. Um, chapter 7, and verse 13, says that Pharaoh's heart was strong. The word, by the way, to harden here, is the word to strengthen or to encourage. To strengthen or to encourage. And it gives the idea that it's strengthening what is already there or encouraging in what is already there. And so Pharaoh's heart was hardened... Already, he had already hardened his own heart and God just extended him out in that. We read the same kind of thing in Romans chapter one as a general principle that God uses in dealing with people, that if you refuse the truth and you harden your heart against it, God will give you over or he will give you up to certain things. And we'll read him. Let's take a look. Well, let's not take a look, but I'll just read it to you in Romans one. It says, Therefore, God gave them over, that is because they worship the creature rather than the creator. It says, therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. He gave them over to it. They were already going that way, and he just let them go on and gave them the result of their own choices. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. That is, they started being involved in immorality, and then God said, well, if you won't repent of that, then he just let them go on and, they, and, and um, gave them the result of their choices. Just let them go off into it. And verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Okay, So then, because the people hardened their hearts and would not listen to the truth, then God gave them over. And it's the same kind of thing happening with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord and refused to let the people go. And God extended his choice out and said, okay, have the results of your choice. Okay, And God has the right to do that. If we harden our hearts, he has the right to judge us by giving us the result of our choices. You understand that? Yes? No? no? Okay. Maybe it's so cold that people's heads can't go up and down here. Okay. Okay, that was 713. It says his heart was strong. 714 um, shows that it was Pharaoh's responsibility. God blames it on Pharaoh. It says he refuses to let the people go because his heart is hard. Um, 722 says, his heart was strong. That's again, Pharaoh's heart was strong. In 723, literally it says, he did not set his heart even to this. So it's something that was Pharaoh's responsibility. He should have set his heart to it, but he did not do so. Chapter 8 and verse 15. Pharaoh hardened or made heavy his heart. That's something Pharaoh did, not God. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Chapter 8 and verse 19, Pharaoh's heart was strong and he did not listen to what was said. Chapter 8 and verse 32 says Pharaoh made heavy his heart. Pharaoh made heavy his heart. This is all literal rendering, of course. The word is translated usually hardened, but I'm giving you literal renderings mostly. 8.32. 8.32. Okay. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. God says to Pharaoh, if you refuse. Indicating that Pharaoh had a choice there. He could refuse or he could submit. If you refuse, God said. Chapter, seven, or chapter 9 in verse 7. It says the heart of Pharaoh was heavy. He did not let the people go. In other words, he refused. The heart of Pharaoh was heavy. He did not let the people go. Now, in chapter 9 and verse 12, we have the first statement. After many of the plagues had already happened, we have the first statement that the Lord hardened or made strong Pharaoh's heart. After a time of great refusal with great plagues happening in Egypt and God giving Pharaoh abundant opportunity to repent and to change his ways, God finally came to the place where he said, well, okay, I'll just give him the results of his choices now. And started hardening Pharaoh's heart. It says, the Lord hardened or made strong or encouraged or strengthened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 9 and verse 16. It's an interesting verse, and it's the one that's related to um, what we're talking about in the book of Romans. It's the one that's quoted in the book of Romans. I allowed you to remain in order to show you My power. Now that's different from the way it's quoted in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle was probably quoting from the Septuagint, or the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Old Testament, and he quotes it a little bit differently. And and in the New Testament, he says, um, "I, "I allowed you to stand in order to show my power, or to make my power known." But here he says, "I allowed you to remain to show my power, to show you my power, and to proclaim my name." and still you exalt yourself against my people so as not to let them go. Now, even after God had hardened Pharaoh's heart in this one incident, God said, still you exalt yourself against my people and will not let them go. You see? So it wasn't a permanent thing that when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it was always a specific incident having to do with a specific plague, and then he stopped and wanted to find out what Pharaoh's reaction was going to be after that, you see? And he said, still you refuse. Even after all these things, you refuse to let them go. And he blamed Pharaoh. So Pharaoh must have been able to choose at that point. It's interesting that God says here, I allowed you to remain. Now that's in the context of this, if you read the verse before. The context is this. I could have wiped you out with plagues by now. I could have eliminated your whole country. But I allowed you to remain in order to show you my power. Now wasn't that neat of the Lord to do that for Pharaoh, that God could have completely eliminated them, but he was giving him more and more and more chances. He wanted to show God, he wanted to show Pharaoh his power and wanted Pharaoh to know who God was. And so he allowed them to remain and didn't completely wipe them out. That was 9.16. And uh, I'll read the verse before it for you. 9.15 says... For if if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this cause I have allowed you to remain, or to stand, in order to show you my power, and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Okay, so the one that's quoted in... in, uh, Romans has to be understood in the context of the Old Testament idea and the Old Testament context that Paul is quoting from. And it's an act of mercy that God has allowed Mo, um, Pharaoh to stand in order to show his power. It's not a it, um, it's not an arbitrary thing and it's also not a thing of um, of God arbitrarily wanted to display his power but it was related to showing mercy towards Pharaoh. Okay? Now remember the verse we're quoting in Romans. verse we're looking at in Romans is this for the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you now in the Old Testament it says to show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth now here you see it's in reference to if we look at it in the Old Testament context showing mercy towards Pharaoh isn't that neat that it's not an arbitrary thing that God raised him up and gave him power and And all God wanted to do was just sort of blast away at him. That wasn't the way God was. God allowed him to remain and didn't wipe him off from the earth because he wanted him to be able to see God's power so they give him an opportunity to repent. In um, chapter... hmm? Uh, 17? Chapter 9 and verse 34 in Exodus. Okay? Pharaoh sinned again, it says, and he hardened or made heavy his heart. Now here, the Bible accuses Pharaoh of hardening his own heart. He sinned again. And so it said before that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And yet here we have an account after that of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And so you see, it starts going back and forth. It becomes more and more God giving Pharaoh what he deserves. And yet at the same time, it's always temporary. It's always a temporary act to harden Pharaoh's heart and it's never—it's it, not like God took away his will permanently. It's only at specific spots that God hardened or strengthened his heart. Okay? So then Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Verse 35, his heart was strong and did, he did not let the sons of Israel go. It blames him for that. It was his fault. In um, chapter 10 in verse 1, the Lord says, I have made heavy his heart to perform these signs among them. I have made heavy his heart to perform these signs among them. Again, it did not relate to his salvation. It only related to God's movement in history. Okay. Chapter 10 and verse 4, God says, now, now look, God had just said in verse 1, I have hardened his heart. And then Moses comes to him and in verse 4, he says, He says, if you refuse, you see that, and still says Pharaoh has his own responsibility. If you refuse, Pharaoh had the ability to refuse or to humble himself and to submit, even after God had hardened his heart, and it says in verse chapter in chapter chapter ten and verse one, get it out somehow. So then see it goes back and forth that God accuses Pharaoh of, of still refusing. And at certain times it says, God hardened his heart. And yet after that it may say, um, Pharaoh refused to let the people go. Indicating that Pharaoh had the choice and Pharaoh did not do so. Chapter 10 and verse 20 says, the Lord made strong Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 10 and verse 27 says, the Lord made strong Pharaoh's heart. He encouraged him or strengthened him. He gave him the result for his choices chapter 11 and verse 9 it says Pharaoh will not listen to you and in verse 10 it says the Lord made strong Pharaoh's heart that was why he wouldn't listen because the Lord made his heart strong in that case and in chapter 13 and verse 15 it says this Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go now this is looking back at the whole issue at the whole thing of of Pharaoh's dealings and God says Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go or Moses said that and God said 13:15 and so the, the general view that God takes of the whole situation is Pharaoh was stubborn which is Pharaoh's fault not God chapter 14 and verse 4 I will I will make strong Pharaoh's heart the result was God said I will be honored and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord Again, it didn't have to do with Pharaoh's salvation. It had to do with God's action in history. God's being honored, and the Egyptians would come to know that he was the Lord. Chapter 14 and verse 8 says, The Lord made strong Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 14 and verse 17 says, I will make strong the hearts of the Egyptians. Now, that doesn't have to do with Pharaoh. That has to do with all of the Egyptians. Okay? So finally, after all these people had resisted and resisted and resisted, uh, God finally just made their hearts hard as well. Okay? Now, we can see in this case that it was an evil person. It was temporary. When God hardened his heart, it was at, te- at specific times, and it was temporary. And in between those times, Pharaoh had his will back, and, he, and God said, are you going to refuse or are you going to humble yourself? And he refused... And then God went on and hardened his heart again and God would say things like, well, now what Now what do you say?" And he still refused when it was under the power of his will to refuse or to humble himself. It was always temporary. It didn't concern his salvation but concerned things like multiplying signs and wonders in Egypt so forth. Then um, the consequences were suspended. Uh, it doesn't say any place in the scripture that I know of that Pharaoh was in the, ar- was in the army that was drowned in the sea. And if he were in the army that was drowned in the sea, I think it was just merciful that he got killed then, rather than being allowed to go on and have greater condemnation in hell. It would be better for him to be taken then. That would be mercy for him. And then, lastly, it resulted basically in some good either to him or to others. I don't think it did a whole lot of good for Pharaoh because it just hardened his heart. But it did show the Egyptians who the Lord was and taught them something. You see? It made God's glory known and it taught the Egyptians who the Lord was. And so it did result in good to other people. Okay? Have mm-hmm. we already talked about that? Have already talked about that? How about that? Okay, let's go on then in Romans chapter 9. We had a quick run through Pharaoh here. I'll give you those verses so that you can study them on your own, in your own time. and Go through and look at what was happening. It would be good for you as well to take the references that I've given and write out the kind of things I've got them written out in little phrases what happened so that you can look at the whole picture of what was going on and see where God hardened Pharaoh's heart and where Pharaoh hardened his own heart and to see how the thing went back and forth between uh, the will of God and the will of Pharaoh. Um, yeah, we're back in Romans chapter 9 and verse 18. Um, I'm going to read 14 through 17 again and then read verse 18 and we'll see what we're talking about here. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. And he quotes a verse of scripture to show that there's no injustice with God. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Does that look a little different to you now? The whole idea here is I can't break my laws, Moses, in order to, to let people off from sin. I can't I can't do that. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and have compassion on whom I have compassion. I've got strict laws by which I give my mercy to people, Moses, and I cannot break them for you. Then in verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In other words, salvation does not depend upon your good work, Pharisee. It depends upon God who shows mercy towards you or towards the Gentiles in this case. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. Or, for this purpose, I allowed you to remain, not blotting you out from the earth, which I could have done, to demonstrate my power in you. Or, from the Old Testament, to show you my power, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. In other words, in my mercy, I've allowed this in order that I might be known and in order that you might know who I am. Okay? So then... He has mercy on whom he desires. That is, according to strict principles, he gives mercy to the person whom he desires because of his own own law that he follows. And he hardens whom he desires. He has strict principles by which he hardens people as well. And if you resist and resist and resist and resist, then God has the right, according to principle, to harden you and to give you the results of your evil choices and to judge you in that fashion. So then, when it says... He has mercy on whom He desires. That is, He desires to show it to those people that fit the conditions. And He hardens whom He desires. That is, He hardens those people that fit the conditions. You see, it's not arbitrary. It's according to strict principles as to whom He shows mercy and to the people to whom He will, the people whom He will harden. It's according to principle. He doesn't just say, "Well, I'm going to harden this person." It's according to what they have done as to whether or not He hardens them. And it was according to what the people had done. Now, get the parallel here. You've got Moses and the children of Israel and Pharaoh. And with the children of Israel, God said, I go according to principle to have mercy on people. And with Pharaoh, he's saying, I go according to principle to harden people. In other words, if a person hardens their heart and hardens their heart, the way I will respond is by hardening their heart further, further, encouraging them, strengthening them in that. And if the person repents before me, then I will extend mercy towards them I respond to the person according to what they do to me see according to principle, according to law and not arbitrarily you see and yet this verse gets ripped out of its context and especially out of the context of the Old Testament scriptures and people say well he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires and that's up to God you know if he wants to show you mercy he can do that if he doesn't want to show you mercy he doesn't have to Um, and if he wants to harden you he can do that and if he doesn't want to harden you well that's all the better I suppose you see? And they take it right out of its context of both Romans 9 and of the Old Testament scriptures and say that it's totally arbitrary. You see? And it's not that. What is Paul arguing for here, remember? He's arguing for salvation for the Gentiles through faith. It is perfectly just for God to give salvation to the Gentiles through faith because that's always been the principle by which He's given salvation to people. You see? He was arguing for that in Romans 4 and 5 as well with, with Abraham. Okay? You getting that? Okay. So let's go on and talk about the potter and the pots. Find out some interesting things about potters and pots. You will say to me then, <clears throat> can you see this? Paul the Apostle is anticipating an objection from the Pharisee. Just like he said before, wh- what should we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? Now he's anticipating that this Pharisee, listening to him or reading this, is going to go, now wait a second. Well, what are you talking about? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And you know, Paul the Apostle doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer it. Look what he does. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? In other words, just the very fact that you're answering back to God like that is already breaking your own own, um, statement that you made because you say that you're answering back to God you're making a response back to him. And if you couldn't resist his will, you couldn't do that, could you? Questioning his justice. Okay. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Okay, now remember, Paul didn't directly answer the question. And uh, the person is questioning God's principles in dealing with men. Okay. Um, and Paul the Apostle is saying basically that questioning God's principles in dealing with men is not valid on the basis of the evidence that we have. Questioning God's principles in dealing with men, like he hardens he, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Remember that's a statement of God's principle. That on the evidence that we have, from especially from the context before that concerning um, the children of Israel and the case with Pharaoh, that we have no right to question God's justice in the way that he bestows mercy or the way he hardens people because he does it according to strict principles. He says, the thing, will, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? In other words, you won't question the justice of the potter, will you, in his response to you. Well, we're going to have to look at potters and pots. We're going to have to do that. We must. We must. Okay. Now, verse 21. Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now, that sounds like God sort of makes you one way or makes you the other, doesn't it? Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Now, if you're looking at that as the fact that God can arbitrarily do what he wants, you read it one way. If you look at it according to the principles that we've already seen and according to the parallel passages in the Bible about potters and pots, it looks completely different. First, let's go to Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 4, is the story of the potter and the pot. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and he was there, and, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Now that's the example that was given to Jeremiah. And then the Lord spoke to him, This is what I mean by this example. Verses 5 through 10 is the explanation. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord, Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent, and the word here in the Hebrew is change my mind, concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another time, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will, the word here is think better, and in the Hebrew it is the same word as in the other verse, change my mind of the good with which I had promised to bless it. Now, what does he say the explanation of the potter and the pot is? That if he says, I'm going to destroy this nation because of its evil and the nation repents, he will change his mind and will not do to them as he said he was going to do. And as the potter, it is his privilege to change his mind if the people repent. That's what it means that the potter can do with the pot as he desires. That is, he can follow his principles of strict justice. And if a person repents or if a nation repents, which is interesting, again, in a national context, but if a nation repents, then he can choose not to destroy them because they've repented. And that's his prerogative as the, as the potter to follow those principles. But it's also his prerogative as the potter that if the nation is, is that he has declared he's going to bless it, that if that nation does evil in his sight, he has the prerogative as the potter to change his mind about what he was going to do to that nation. And then he can destroy that nation because they turned away from their righteousness and turned into wickedness. In other words, he follows particular principles in what he does with pots. So then when we we have the, the explanation of the potter and the pot is not an arbitrary thing at all. If if the people do what's right, God will bless them. If the people do what's wrong, God will, will punish them. It's not arbitrary at all as to what the potter does with the pot. Now, let's go back to Romans nine. Does not the potter have a right over the clay? Well let's no, let's go back to verse twenty. Instead of verse twenty one. On the contrary who are you O oh man who answers back to god in other words who are you to question the principles of the potter who are you to question god's justice because god has always shown himself to be just the thing molded will not say to the molder why did you make me like this will it in other words you will not question god in this dispensation of his justice according to his principles will you okay or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use you see that in other words god has the right um, when we are doing the right thing to move us towards honor or to move us towards dishonor and the word here there's an interesting word in the greek the word for a vessel for honor or a vessel for um, dishonor is like this Ace, which means, in the moving in the direction of. If I were saying, it means toward. If I were walking towards the door in Greek, I would use the word "ace." I'm going ace the door, which means moving in the direction of. Okay, now God has the right, if people um, respond to Him properly, to make them vessels moving towards honor. That is, they're going to be honored because of the things that they're choosing to do. He has the right to honor them. Or, and then when it says... Does it say dishonor or no honor? Oh, it says common use. Actually, there's the same word. Honor, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. It's actually, one has the right to make one vessel moving towards honor and another vessel moving towards no honor. And it's the same word, it just has... Um, has an alpha in the beginning of it. You know how we have the word moral? And we put a, we put an A in front of it? Amoral, which means the opposite of that. Okay? Well, they do that. did that a lot in Greek. And that's called an alpha privative. That means you put it, an alpha in front of it and it deprives the word of its meaning or it changes the word to the opposite meaning. Okay? And in the, in the Greek here, it says, towards honor... <coughs> And then it uses the alpha privative, or, towards no honor. And so God has the right, depending on what people do, to make them be vessels moving towards honor or vessels moving towards no honor. But it depends upon what they do. Now, just so that you don't think that's my idea, I'll show you that Paul the Apostle, who also wrote Romans, wrote Timothy as well. And he says something about potters and pots. Okay? First Timothy no second Timothy excuse me second Timothy 2 20 and 21 says this now listen carefully now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels but also vessels of wood and of earthenware and some to honor and some to no honor same words some to honor and some to no honor the word dishonor here is not correct some to honor and some to no honor therefore if a man cleanses himself from these things he will be a vessel for honor sanctified useful to the master prepared for every good work you see that whether you're a vessel moving towards honor or a vessel moving towards dishonor is dependent upon whether or not you cleanse yourself if a man cleanses himself from these things he will be a vessel moving towards honor so it depends upon the choices we make as to whether we're vessels moving towards honor or vessels moving towards dishonor it's up to us it's not an arbitrary choice on the part of god to make us before we're born vessels moving towards honor or vessels moving towards dishonor okay read that again in verse 21 romans 9 Then we'll go on or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump One vessel for honorable use or one vessel moving towards honor and another moving towards dishonor? Doesn't God have the right to do that? Yes, He does. He has the right, if I choose to cleanse myself from these things, to make me a vessel moving towards honor rather than dishonor. He has the right to bless me for the choices that I make rather than to punish me. You see? But that's not arbitrary. That's according to strict principles of justice. Oh, I get so excited. You're so excited to see that, that this whole passage of scripture is not talking about god as some arbitrary tyrant some ogre he's talking about god's strict principles of justice okay verse 22 and what if god although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known now first okay let's read the rest of the verse i guess endured with much patience vessels of wrath Prepared for destruction. Now he's going to start talking about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, which is the same kind of thing as vessels to honor and vessels to dishonor. Now, because you're going to end up in one place or the other, either wrath will be upon you or mercy will be upon you, depending upon what you do. Okay? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth through their unrighteousness Romans 1:18 it's because of unrighteousness and suppressing the truth that god reveals his wrath against them and it's in a continual tense in the or present tense in the um in Romans 1:18 god is revealing it right now against people who suppress the truth through unrighteousness And mercy, as we saw before, depends upon what you do. If you receive mercy, um, it's towards people that fear him, it's towards people that love him and keep his commandments, so forth. You've got the scriptures on the conditions for mercy. So then, you're either a vessel that is going towards wrath, or you're a vessel that is going towards mercy. But it depends upon what you do. Okay? Now, let's go back again. 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, now, the word willing here does not mean that God was sitting there anxiously waiting to clobber somebody over the head. That's not what that means. It means that it, instead of being actively involved, it is that he was not, in the sense, not willing to, to hold it back. You understand what I mean? Some heads yes or some no, huh? You don't quite yet. Okay? There, I could say, I was willing to do something. That does not mean necessarily that I wanted to do so, but that I was willing to do it because there was re- there were reasons why I should do so. Okay, And it's the same kind of I- idea here with God. It's not that he was sitting there waiting to find somebody that was doing something wrong and clobber them over the head. Not that kind of willing to make his wrath known, but the kind of willing that was he would not withhold it if he had to give it. Okay, does it help a little bit? Not necessarily that he w- wanted to jump in there and go, slice, slice, slice with people not that at all it's just that he would not withhold it if it was necessary to give it because the people had sinned okay although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known in other words he he saw that this was necessary to do this to to let his wrath go because of these because of these people that deserved destruction he was he was he was willing to let it go if necessary and yet it says he endured with much patience these vessels moving towards wrath. He endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, the whole point there is that God endured these people in order that he might do something to someone else, which we read in verse 23. He did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Now, we get the same picture here as we do with the Egyptians. God's got all these Egyptians with hard hearts. And God endures them with much patience in order to make his glory known. He doesn't just wipe them out. But he endures them with much patience to show his power to them, to try to get them to know who he is, and to make his own glory known in the world. He endures them even though they deserve to be wiped out. Understand that? Okay, so then we'll go on. So he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction now who prepared these vessels for destruction okay the whole context up to this point would indicate to you that they prepared themselves but not only do we have that but we have other evidence that they prepared themselves as well in the greek word okay they were prepared for destruction i'm going to quote to you from the book grace unlimited In an article called god's promise and universal history or the theology of romans chapter 9 by a guy named james d strauss okay he says this the phrase vessels of wrath prepared for destruction translates and then he gives the greek for that which you probably won't be too interested in the english translation generally implies that some individuals were prepared by a sovereign act of god for destruction at least since augustine and calvin this viewpoint has been widely held but the form and he gives the the greek word is a perfect passive this is the word for prepared or fitted in the king james version is a perfect passive or middle participle in the perfect passive perfect tense the passive and middle have the same form only the context will determine which way the word should be translated the context of this term is is Paul's argument which immediately stems from the three questions asked in verse 20. The larger context has been the entire structure of Romans 9. Every example which Paul has shown stresses personal responsibility on man's part and justice and mercy on God's part, which is what we've looked at so far. The whole of Romans 9 is concerned with Israel's unbelief and it is central to Paul's total argument that Israel is responsible for their rebellious attitude towards God's promise. God always judges unbelief. This is his justice. It is always possible to repent and return to the presence of God. This is his mercy. In In this context, I see no justification for translating the word under consideration as passive, that is, the subject is acted upon, but rather the translation should be fitted themselves for wrath. From, from one eighteen, that is, Romans one eighteen, we learn that God's wrath is continually being revealed. That is, he's um, got the Greek word apocalyptatai, which means it's a present indicative passive, presently and not at some further event of judgment. From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh, were experiencing the wrath of God outside of God's righteousness in Christ. Rebellion against God's promised purpose has always brought his wrath, but only after calling to repentance and restoration. Interesting quote, huh? Um, in Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, it says this, concerning this word, "Katharizo" is rendered, fitted in Romans 9.22, that's King James Version, Of vessels of wrath here the middle voice which he believed it was a middle voice too a greek scholar the middle voice signifies that those referred to fitted themselves for destruction as illustrated in the case of pharaoh the self-hardening of whose heart is accurately presented in the revised version in the first part of the series of incidents incidents in the exodus narrative which records pharaoh's doings only after repeated and persistent obstinacy on his part Is it recorded that God hardened his heart? Well, you have a couple of scholars there that believe that the word is in the middle voice. You know what the word middle, what a middle voice is? You have a subject, you have a verb, acts on an object. But in the middle voice, the, the one who receives the action of the verb is the subject. So you have the subject act and act upon the subject, like that. That's what the middle voice is. And it means that they prepared themselves for destruction. Not that someone outside of them prepared them for destruction, but that they prepared themselves, which fits into the whole context of the thing, if you're looking carefully at the context. He endured with much patience vessels of wrath who fitted themselves for destruction. They were being rebellious and disobedient, and God endured with much patience these vessels That were moving towards wrath, or that were, that deserved to have wrath. He did so. Now, why did he endure with much patience these people who were, were in rebellion against him? In order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. This does not mean, the word, the words prepared beforehand here does not indicate that he prepared them for some kind of glory as far as, um, like in the future is concerned, but that he prepared before that they would be able to have glory as vessels of mercy. His glory upon vessels of mercy or the vessels that deserved mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And then, that doesn't stop there, the thought goes on, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. He <laughs> did. And so you see his whole context here is that there are vessels of wrath amongst the Gentiles and there are vessels of mercy amongst the Gentiles. There are vessels of wrath amongst the Jews and there are vessels of wrath amongst, uh, and vessels of mercy amongst the Jews and vessels of wrath amongst the Jews. So you've got both groups, Jews and Gentiles, and each of those groups is divided into two, vessels moving towards wrath and vessels moving towards mercy. It depends on what they do in respect to the gospel whether or not they believe in the Messiah okay um, in verses 22 and 23 um, basically when God when he said when Paul says uh, what if God endured with much patience he, he's sort of saying now what are you going to say fella about God's injustice since this objector brought up this question well who can resist his will no you know anyway you know why would, why does he still find fault who resists his will and basically Paul says here well what you going to do fella if God endures with much patience people that deserve to be wiped out how you going to handle that one I think it's rather I don't know if he had his tongue in his cheek or not when he was saying that one okay but what's he going to do if God if God is patient what about them apples huh okay so they were prepared they prepared themselves for destruction and it is they are vessels they were vessels moving towards one or the other. Um, I don't know if I'm going to quote this other one. I'll take a look at it. I don't think I'm going to quote this other um, this other quote because I got into it, and got, got looking into the Greek and found out that, that it was just, he had just gone all wrong. So I'm kind of, not going to go into it. Um, Check it out with Tom, who knows Greek, if you ever want to look into things... Or Hebrew, Talmud both in the training program. Anyway, let's go on. How much time do we have on that side? Fine, huh? Okay. So um, you see, the same kind of thing is happening in in these two verses, twenty-two and twenty-three, as happened in Exodus nine sixteen. God endured patiently in order to show His glory. In both cases, I've allowed you to remain in order to show My glory. Uh, in the earth and in the same he's doing the same thing here. So who can complain if God is patient and long-suffering and merciful? I mean, nobody can complain about that Okay, I have no problem with God's being patient and long-suffering and merciful the people who deserve to be eliminated all right, that, that all that does is tell me how good God is Okay, so um, This is the same also the same kind of thing as in um Romans or Ephesians chapter one, where it talks about we have been predestined to glory. We have been prepared beforehand or predestined to glory, or we've been predestined to adoption as sons, which is something that's going to happen in the future. Um, In Romans eight, I'm just going to put this down mostly for the tape because we've already talked about it. But in Romans eight, it says it gives a definition of adoption as sons. And says that the word means the redemption of our bodies. Romans eight what verse is that? Romans eight twenty three. Thank you. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, that is, we're Christians, say he's talking about Christians, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So then, we have not been adopted yet. The word "adopted" doesn't have to do with salvation. We don't get adopted and born into the family of God. We get born into it. You see, Um, and we don't get adopted into the family of God. We are adopted as sons. That is, we are son placed. The word "adoption" here means son placement. And we are going to be, when our bodies are redeemed, we're going to be placed as sons. We're going to come into our full inheritance as the children of God. That hasn't happened to us yet. The Bible says we are eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons. So in Ephesians chapter 1, when it says that, that we've been predestined, that's verse 5, uh, verse 5, yes. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. That is, those of us, that was Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6, those of us who are in the Beloved have had this grace freely bestowed on us that we should be placed as sons. That's going to happen in the future. So the word predestined there has to do with what's going to happen to Christians in the future. It does not have to do with whether or not a person is saved or lost. Because the word adoption does not have to do with being saved or lost. It has to do with our being son-placed. And it has not happened yet. God has predestined that all those that are in the Beloved, all those that become Christians, will be placed as sons. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't have to do with our individual salvation. It has to do with our being placed as sons if we are Christians. Okay, now let's go on. In verses twenty five through twenty nine, which we're going to read and then briefly comment on, he says this um, as he also as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not beloved beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabbath or of of hosts or of the armies had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. So what is he talking about? He's saying that out of both Jews and Gentiles, there are these vessels of mercy. That is, those people that have given their lives to the Lord and have accepted Jesus as the Messiah have become vessels that are going to receive mercy because of their choice. And he says, what is this then about both Jews and Gentiles being in this group? He says, this is the remnant that God was talking about. This is the remnant. That God was speaking of when He said, "A remnant of Israel is going to be saved." Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, and it is a small group out of all the Jews in the world that have given their lives to the Lord. But there are also included in that there are Gentiles in that group because they can can be saved if they give their lives to the Lord as well. And in verses thirty through thirty-three. 30 through 33 he wraps up part of this, this part of the argument about Jews and Gentiles. What shall we say then? okay this is what we say basically what he's saying that Gentiles who did not who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed or put to shame. So then, what's he saying? The Gentiles, through faith, have been able to come into this remnant. And many of the Jews trying to be justified through their good works were left out of the remnant because they didn't they didn't pursue righteousness in God's fashion. They pursued righteousness according to their own good works, thinking they could earn their favor with God, whereas the Gentiles by faith received the gift from God and in, as they turned in repentance away from their sin and gave their lives to God, became a part of this remnant and even people that were actually Jews missed out on that because they didn't follow it according to God's principles but tried to establish their own righteousness. Which is rather interesting because that's what Paul goes on to say in chapter 10. Keep going, up, huh? Okay. <clears throat> in chapter 10, which we're going to go on in chapter 10, Paul is again talking about the principle of justification by faith in verses 1 through 13. And we can see specifically that he's talking about justification by faith in respect to the Gentiles. Verse 12, he says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Verse 13, For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So then he's talking about the principle of justification by faith again. Um, verses 1 through 4. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is for Israel, is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. OK, in other words, faith and trust in Christ will if you start having faith and trust in Christ, you must stop trying to justify yourself by your own good works. And in Galatians, Paul says, if you turn from faith in Christ and start trying to be justified by the works of the law, you will fall from grace. And so I can work the other direction as well. Okay, then he talks about how to be saved. Verses 9 and 10. We read 12 and 13. Um, 14 and 15, he talks about preaching the gospel. We're just going to briefly go through those. How shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Now he's talking about the preaching of the gospel or hearing the good news about God. Verse 16. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? In other words, God, is there anybody out there that listened to us at all? Did anybody believe what we said? He's got this big question, you see. I can't see anybody, God. I don't know if anybody listened to what I was talking about. So he asks the Lord, Lord, who has believed our report? He couldn't find any that he could see, so he had to go to the Lord and ask if there was anybody. Okay, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or by the preaching of Christ. Read either way. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the preaching of Christ. Now listen to this really interesting question and answer in verse 18. But I say, surely they have never heard Have they now in this specific case, he's talking about the Gentiles. And we can see that he's talking about the Gentiles because in verse 21, he makes a contrast. But as for Israel, he says. But as for Israel, he says. Okay. now, but surely. But I say, surely they have never heard. Have they indeed they have. Now, what's he saying? Have they heard or have they not? They have heard. Now, how did they hear? Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, he's quoting here from Psalm 19. And what does Psalm 19 say about how God preaches to the world? Revelation through creation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. Back in verse 18 of Romans 10, says, Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. How did the Gentiles hear the gospel? through the through the preaching of the creation. Well surely these gentiles aren't responsible, are they, for the gospel? Yes, they're responsible for what has been preached to them in creation. And if they're condemned because of their disobedience to that, that's their fault. Because God has preached to them the glad tidings in the creation. In the book of Colossians um It says that God has preached the gospel in all of the creation. Verse six, it says, um, which has come to you, that is the word of the gospel, have heard heard in in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Now, did he mean that the word of the gospel that he was preaching was in all of the world, constantly bearing fruit? No. In the Greek there, it says, just as it is in all of the creation, the word of the truth is being cre- preached in the creation, in the created order that God has made. Again, as it says in Romans chapter 1, that through the creation, men are able to tell what God is like. And if they don't submit themselves to that, then they condemn themselves. That was Colossians 1.6. And then again in Romans 1.20, it says that if a man does not live according to the light that he has from creation. He is without excuse. That's a really strong word. Without excuse. It means in the Greek, without any rational defense. No rational defense for a man who looks at the creation and refuses to live according to what he sees there. Okay, well, that's another subject. We'll go on. So, what is he saying here? Let's go on verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? In other words, now he's turning his focus to Israel and saying, well, they didn't know maybe. And he says, well, at the first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. See, he's still talking about the Gentiles here. I will make you jealous by that, that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. It's the Gentiles. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. That is the Gentiles. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You see? Yes, Israel has heard. Israel has heard and they're disobedient and obstinate. They've been refusing what they have heard. Okay? Okay. So then, we'll go on to uh, chapter 11. Should be interesting? Keep going, huh? Okay. Chapter 11. Start with verse 1 here. First section, the first major section is verses 1 through 10. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Period. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Period. I keep reading that as a question. Because I guess the first part is a question. Huh? Um, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, what about this foreknowledge? Those whom God foreknew. Number one, it's a group of people. Israelites. It is not individual individuals that God foreknew. It is a group. Just as in um, other references in the Bible, when, you, when the word foreknowledge is used, it is in the context of group and not individuals. Those whom God foreknew as a nation, Israel. Now, God formed and kept this entire nation for himself. And since he knew that he was going to form this nation, he told Abraham that he was going to do it before, excuse me, before Abraham died, he said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And he knew that he was going to have this nation. That was going to bring glory to him and that he was going to communicate truth through them to the world. And so since he knew ahead of time that he was going to do it, then he foreknew that he was going to have a nation. So I don't have to read God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew to mean that God has absolute foreknowledge. I can read that to mean God knew that he was going to have a nation. And he did have a nation. And the reason he could know that he would have a nation was because he planned to do it. And then he brought it about. OK, so God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know the script, what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed thy prophets and have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, we want to look at, in the Old Testament, that particular portion of Scripture. 1 Kings chapter 19. Because Paul goes on to say, in the same way. And if we don't understand what way God's talking about, we won't understand what he means by in the same way. 1 Kings 19, verse 10 is the question that Paul quotes. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. This is Elijah speaking. For the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Okay? Then the response to God is in verse 18, but we're going to read verses 15 through 18, the paragraph here, so that we get the idea of what God's talking about. And the Lord said to him, Go, Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you are, have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Okay, gives him three things to do: anoint the king of uh, Judah, or anoint the king of Syria, anoint the king of Israel, and anoint. Um, Elisha to take his place as prophet, it shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, when he says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, what does he mean by leave in its context? What's the verse before say? Right. He will not allow them to be killed physically. Okay. It shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. And which 7,000 is he going to leave? The ones that didn't bow to Baal and the ones who didn't kiss him. So you see, there was a condition upon which God would spare their lives, and that was that they had not worshipped idols. It was the people who had not worshipped Baal that God would spare their lives physically and not allow them to be killed. So what is the principle here? God spares, according to his grace, he spares according to his grace those people that do not submit themselves to idols. So there's a uh, condition involved. Now, verse five. In the same way, then that's the same way as the portions of scriptures he's just quoted in the same way, then there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's choice of grace or gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Okay. So what's he saying again? He's getting into the works and grace thing. And on condition, he's saying, in the same way as the people in the Old Testament didn't worship Baal and thus they were spared physically, in the same way, there's a remnant now that is spiritually, there's a remnant according to God's grace for those that turn away from sin. Those that meet the conditions fit into the remnant and they come under God's grace. Get it? The parallel he's drawing, it's not according to God's arbitrary choice, but it is according to whether or not they fit into that into that remnant. If they meet the conditions, then God will spare them in the same way that if the men did not bow their knees to Baal, then God spared them. Okay. So then he contrasts here grace and works. And as we saw before, we have a contrast of grace and works and faith and works, but we never have a contrast between grace and faith. It's always by grace through faith. Paul never contrasts grace and faith. Grace is the grounds of our salvation and faith is the condition. It's by grace, that's the grounds, through faith, that's the condition. Grounds and conditions for salvation. One emphasizes God's side, grace. The other emphasizes man's side of the relationship, faith. Faith is not a work. Faith is a responsibility. Faith is a condition. Faith is not a work. I do not believe God in order that he might, um, that I might earn some kind of favor with him. I believe God because that's what I should do, in relationship with him. I should trust him, and if I meet that condition then God is free to be able to forgive me and have mercy upon me. It is not that I am working my way to God by trusting in him. I'm only putting myself in the place where God, in his principles, according to his principles, can bestow mercy upon me by having faith. But it's not a work. I don't work my way to God. Okay, I want to emphasize that because there are a lot of people um, that may be listening um, that have maybe been told that faith is a work and that Arminians look upon faith as a work. But we don't look upon faith as a work. It's a condition so that we can be in a place where God can bestow mercy upon us, but we're not trying to work our way to God. We're very definitely against works just as much as the Calvinists are against works. Okay, because the Bible is really clear about that. You can't work your way to God. Now, verse 7. Carry on here. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen, that is, the election, that is, the ones chosen, obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Those chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Well, there's so many things we have to go through to understand these things, don't we? Well, here we go again. Those chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. Now, we've already seen why people get hardened and that when people get hardened, they get hardened according to strict principles of justice. Right? We've already seen that in the case of Pharaoh. Now, so the hardened there is not a problem. The other part is the problem. Those chosen obtained it. Now, um, I think I forgot to turn my page here. This whole thing, those chosen and those hardened, goes back to the idea in Romans chapter 9 of the children of the promise and the children of the flesh. Because not everyone who is descended from Israel is Israel. And when it says those who were chosen, we have six different ways that the word election is used in the New Testament. And in all six of these ways, there is not one of them that indicates that God chooses us arbitrarily. They're all associated with um, conditions that have to be fulfilled in order to be a part of the chosen. In other words, election is conditional. God shows mercy upon us, and therefore you become part of the elect upon condition. God shows mercy upon condition. God shows mercy upon condition. Therefore you become part of the elect upon condition. Now there is another work um, that um, Forst, what, their, what their names? Forster and Marston have done called God's Strategy in Human History, and I'm going to direct you to that God's Strategy in Human History, chapter fifteen, is a word study on the words chosen and elect or chosen and elect word study on chosen and elect. And they point out the six major areas in the New Testament that the word chosen and elect is used and point out that election is conditional. And they've done such a fine job of that. I'm not going to try to do better than they do. So they've done some wonderful study there and showing that election is conditional. It's interesting. One of the points that they point out, I think is really interesting, is uh, Ruth became a part of the line of the Messiah. She was a Moabitess. She was a Moabitess. That means she wasn't part of the Jewish people, but she became part of the line of the Messiah. Why? Because she refused to leave Naomi. And by her choice, she said, your people will be my people. Your God will. Will be my God, and she brought herself by choice right into the chosen people. Okay, chosen in this regard is to bring the Messiah into the world and to bring truth into the world. In other words, she elected herself into the chosen people. She made a choice that brought her into the into the, to being part of the elect, part of the chosen, and so that same kind of pattern follows all the way through. The words elect that you'll find examples where people are part of the elect, they're part of the chosen, because they have fulfilled certain conditions. God chooses you because you fulfill certain conditions. It is not that God arbitrarily chooses you. Now, um, this next verse is very interesting. Verse 8. Because Paul has snatched up, he has grabbed two Old Testament texts, crammed them together and turned them around. It's really strange. I don't know why he did that, but he just sort of took the general idea from two verses in the Old Testament and stuck them together into one verse because you can't really find an Old Testament text that says exactly this, but you can find two texts that have the phrases in them and, and stick them together and come up with, Paul, with what Paul has here. Very interesting. He says... Those, verse 7, those who were chosen obtained it, that is according to principle, and the rest were hardened, that would be according to principle, just as it is written. Now he's saying they were hardened, and some, some were involved in the elect, and some were hardened, just like it's written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And the two places he's quoting from is Isaiah 29 10, and Deuteronomy 29.4. Now, in Isaiah 29.10 it says this, Isaiah 29.10, for the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. Now, that's like the first phrase. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Then he says, eyes to hear not, <laughs> eyes to hear not, eyes to see not and ears to hear not. Okay. Then in verse 10 of of Isaiah 29, it says, He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. Is that interesting? He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. And if you look at the context of this, the whole thing is that because of, because the people had rejected, in, in the context of Isaiah 29, because the people had rejected the word of the Lord in obeying his voice, that finally he was going to bring that he was going to blot out the word of vision to the seers and to the prophets and he wasn't going to give them his word anymore. He was going to shut their eyes and he was going to, to plug their ears by taking away the people that would speak the word of the Lord to them. So the general principle here that Paul is getting at by taking these different verses is that if you resist the Word of God, then what he does is he'll he'll eventually your eyes will be blinded and your ears will be stopped. You see that will happen to you if you resist the word of God, that God can do that to you. And in the same way, in Deuteronomy 29, four, it just sort of snatches up a another phrase out of this thing here. But it's the same kind of um, situation. Moses is talking about how the Lord has led them all this way out of Egypt and through the wilderness and so forth. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Why? Why hadn't God given them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to know? Because they continually refused to listen to his voice. And so finally, God said, well, then you just won't understand. And so he plugged their eyes and Or plug their eyes. Plug their ears. (laughs) Close their eyes. Having trouble with my eyes and my ears here. Um, And so that was a result of their refusing to give themselves. So the hardening of God on their hearts was because they had already refused to listen to what God had said. So He hardened their hearts, He um, um, closed their eyes, and He plugged their ears. I'm going to get it straight this time. So then, how does this happen? Just as it is written, he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. In other words, because they resisted the word of God, verse 7 now I'm talking about, the people who were hardened, because they resisted the word of God, they ended up being hardened, just like in these two cases in Isaiah and Deuteronomy. And he just pulls two two sections of, of scripture out and crams them together into one verse. Because all he's getting at here is the principle, not necessarily the specific words that are said. He's after the principles. And David says, now he's going to quote another verse of scripture to show you the same principle. David says, let their trap become a snare and let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Now, what is that? Is he saying, okay, God, you arbitrarily do this to somebody? No. He's quoting from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. And in this psalm, David is praying for God to repay his enemies for their sin. That's what he's doing. Say, God, they're doing this to me. You give them what they deserve. I don't know whether or not it was right for him to pray that. But uh, he did it. We need to see what he was doing. Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23 is what he quotes. I'm going to go through and read some phrases of, of uh, Psalm 69 to show you what he, who he's talking about. Those who hate me, this is verse 4, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. Verse 6. May those who seek thee not be dishonored through me. Oops. May those who seek thee not be dishonored through me. That's not what I want, evidently. Okay, verse 11. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Verse 12. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Verse 14. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. Verses 18 and 19. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. Thou dost know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before thee. 20 and 21. Reproach has broken my heart. I am so sick. And I looked for, sympath- for sympathy, sympathy, but there was none and for comfort, comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually. And then part of this prayer in verse 27, I think this is one of the most important parts here, part of this prayer do thou add iniquity to their iniquity? You get that? He's saying, God, you add iniquity to their iniquity. It's the same kind of thing as God gave them over to a reprobate heart. God gave them over to impurity through the lust of their, of their hearts. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Same kind of thing, you see? Same kind of thing as with Pharaoh. He's saying, God, they've been involved in iniquity. You just force them out there. Give them what they deserve. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into thy righteousness. May they be blotted out of thy book, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. You see? I don't know if it was right for him to pray that, but uh, that's what he was praying. And the principle that Paul's getting at here is that because people refuse, because they were the enemies of the Lord, then they deserve to have iniquity added to their iniquity and for God to harden them. So then in verses 7 through 10, we see again that he's not talking about an arbitrary act of God, that some people were chosen to have salvation and others were hardened from having salvation, but he's talking about, um, excuse me, lost my train of thought. But he's talking about the fact that, um, if we, If we meet certain conditions, then God responds to us in a certain fashion, even if that fashion may be hardening us because we're rebellious. Okay. Verses 11 through 24. Okay. Verses 11 through 24. I'm going to simply read and comment upon because they're so um, they're so simple. They're so easy to understand, especially since we've had the context of Romans 9 and 10. I say then they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, you see, it's talking about the Israelites delivering up Jesus in crucifixion, that is, rejecting the Messiah. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, that is, the Jews, jealous. Now, if their transgression, that is, the rejection of Jesus as Messiah, be riches for the world, and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfilment be? In other words, how much greater is it when we see a Jew, or these these particular people we have no reason to go beyond what he's talking about here. Um, when we see a, the person who has rejected the Messiah turn and give their life to him, how much how much um, more fulfilling do we see that when it was through the very act of disobedience that they that they performed that God used that to bring um, salvation to the world? you get that? Yes? No? That was a long sentence and very complicated, I know. But I'm beginning to talk like Paul the Apostle after reading so much. Okay? He always talking these long sentences. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then, as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. In other words, I magnify my ministry to you Gentiles, because I'm a, an apostle to the Gentiles, in hopes that, eventually, because of all these Gentiles that are that are coming into to know God and being saved and so forth, the Jews might be moved to jealousy, and I might be able to get them to listen, because they got moved to jealousy. I finally got their attention through an, another nation being part of the Church of God. I finally got their got their attention, and now maybe I can preach the gospel to them. Okay, for if their rejection And the word here is, in the Greek, means the rejection of them. Um, It's called an objective genitive. Remember when I asked you about that? It's an objective genitive, and it means that they were the ones who were rejected. It's not talking about their rejection of Jesus. If their rejection, that is, they they were rejected or they were hardened because they refused the Messiah, be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You see, when they're received back, it'll be like people coming back from the dead. And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. Then he goes into his tree, his olive tree example, which goes through verse 24. It's very simple to understand. We'll see it's quite simple. If some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, that is a Gentile, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Notice that some of the branches were broken off, not all of the branches. You see. And you got grafted in among them. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. In other words, don't be arrogant towards the Jews and go, ha! Ah, I'm a, I'm a Gentile and I got involved in the in the election, too. He says, you can't you can't do that. You can't be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Okay, remember, you're not hanging in there, folks. It's because of what God has done in history that you're able to be a part of of this um, election. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. See, it wasn't an arbitrary act of God. They were broken off because of their unbelief. And you stand only by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You see God's principles here? If, if you turn and you're unbelieving, God will do the same thing to you that he did with the other person who wasn't believing. He'll break you off. See? God's principles, exact principles of strict justice, right down the line. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold, then, the kindness and the severity of God. To those who who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. Now listen, if God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So the severity of God comes to a person because they they were in unbelief. And the kindness of God comes to a person because they are believing. And we continue in his kindness. If we we continue in his kindness, then his kindness will be towards us. Otherwise, we'll be cut off if we don't believe. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree?